NK News publishes news stories daily about developments in and information in, from and about North Korea. Meanwhile, NK Pro is a premium-level platform for members who need more specific and detailed information, qualified analysis, and hard-to-obtain data in a timely manner. Career Risk Group publications are entirely funded by subscriptions, giving NK News and NK Pro full independence in our reporting and analysis. The two publications are widely considered among North Korea watchers in governments, business, and academia to be the best North Korea-focused outlets available. We'd love for all of you to become subscribers to NK News if you aren't already, and if your institution or company wants to get more exclusive information and research tools, think about upgrading to NK Pro. Why not try a year's subscription today? Also, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving a review at iTunes. And of course, do subscribe to the podcast. The podcast is free. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and today it's Saturday, November 21st, 2020, here in Seoul. But in Washington, D.C., it's still Friday, November 20th. My guest today, Ambassador Robert R. King, served as Special Envoy for North Korean Human Rights Issues at the United States Department of State, serving from November 2009 to January 2017. He is currently Senior Advisor to the Korea Chair at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, also known as CSIS. Thank you and welcome on the show, Ambassador King. Glad to be here and glad to join you. Now, we've got lots of questions, so let's just get started talking about your own experience. Uh, You held the job of Special Envoy for uh, North Korean Human Rights for over seven years. That's quite a long time. Could you tell us about some of the frustrations and achievements that you experienced in that position? Part of the problem is obviously the North Koreans aren't terribly interested in human rights. Uh, we made some serious efforts to try to raise the issue with them and to uh, talk with them about human rights issues, and they were quite unwilling to do that. We were able to make some progress in terms of talking about humanitarian issues and various other kinds of things. We were able to uh, work and uh, secure the release of some American citizens who were being held there. Uh, But the North Koreans were not really in a position where they were ready to talk seriously with the United States, uh, either about human rights, and unfortunately, uh, they weren't terribly willing to talk about uh, any of the other issues that uh, bedevil our relationship. Were you able to visit North Korea during your time? Uh, During the time that I was Special Envoy, I was in North Korea once. Uh, I was engaged with the North Koreans on discussion about whether the United States would provide humanitarian assistance Mm -hmm. to North Korea. And uh, we had a round of negotiations in uh, Pyongyang, had some fairly good discussions. Uh, They were serious because they gave me an American citizen as a going away present when I left. Eddie Jun. Uh, This was in uh, May of uh, 2011. Mm -hmm. North Koreans were serious. They wanted uh, humanitarian assistance. We had uh, a crew of about, uh, I think, six or eight people that were there. Uh, several people were able to go out into the countryside to uh, examine the situation and determine what the needs were and justify uh, the fact that they were in need of humanitarian aid. We finished that round of negotiations. We had two further rounds in Beijing rather than in Pyongyang. Beijing was easier for us. We had communications. We have an embassy there. Mm. We don't have an embassy in Pyongyang, and it's more difficult for us to uh, to work from Pyongyang. We had two negotiations there, one in December of uh, 2011 and one in uh, early March of uh, 2012. We were in a position where we had agreed pretty much on what needed to be done for the humanitarian assistance. But at that point, the North Koreans had announced that they were going to uh, launch uh, missiles that uh, were quite problematic. While our humanitarian assistance is not supposed to be linked with uh, any other consideration other than need, it was also the kind of situation that members of Congress would be furious if we were attempting to provide humanitarian aid no matter how well needed if the North Koreans were not cooperating in other areas. So I was there for a short time. (laughs) 
Yes, I see. Would I be right in understanding that you were able to meet with representatives of the North Korean government uh, only uh, three times in total? No, I met with other uh, North Korean officials. There is a, a UN mission in New York, and there were a couple of occasions when we had conversations there. Mm. Uh, there were also uh, some discussions, uh, fairly brief, in Geneva with uh, diplomats there. Okay, so you had a, 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 a several more meetings then? Yeah. So the most substantive ones were the ones that you had uh, in uh, 2011 and 2012 in Pyongyang and Beijing. That's correct. Now, you mentioned um, that those talks were more about humanitarian aid rather than human rights per se. How does the United States government, or how did the United States government at the time, uh, make a distinction between humanitarian and, and human rights? You know, th there are differences, but quite frankly, it's all a question of, uh, of human rights. One of the things that uh, we consider an important human right. This is one that is in the United States uh, canon of human rights and also in the uh, uh, United Nations Universal Declaration on Human Rights and other other documents, is access to food is a, is a human right. They're not exactly the same thing as uh, freedom of the press uh, or uh, the right to travel, mm -hmm. but they're nonetheless related. Yeah, now I'm I'm not uh, an expert on this one uh, by any means, but in the human rights sort of academic community, it's often d divided into two groups. One of them being um, your more basic civil rights, as you just mentioned there, the rights to uh, food, clothing, shelter, freedom from hunger, freedom from war, and then on the other side, you've got your civil and political rights. And it, it, sometimes it seems that the discussion on on human rights in North Korea focuses more intensely on the civil and political rights, so freedom of um, expression and, and uh, media, uh, and democracy, that kind yeah. of thing. Yeah, now th there is a difference, and, and there are different groups which deal with those different issues. My sense is that it's useful to, to work on all of those issues, and that was my portfolio. It included both mm. uh, humanitarian issues as well as uh, civil and human rights. Okay. Now, uh, were you able to meet and talk with any North Koreans who said that they had been victims of human rights abuses that occurred while they were inside North Korea? A number, a number of North Koreans. Uh, there are a number of North Koreans who come to the United States periodically who have left North Korea. Most of them are now uh, citizens and residents of uh, South Korea. Uh, I met with a number of them. Uh, many of them come to the United States. Many of them are brought here by human rights groups. Uh, I also met with a number of uh, of North Koreans uh, who were recently arrived uh, in South Korea. Thanks to the uh, courtesy of the South Korean government, uh, I was able to go to Hanawon and mm. uh, meet with some of the uh, new arrivals there and talk with them about their experiences and so forth. And I also met with... Uh, some of the uh, North Korean uh, uh, refugees, uh, defectors, uh, who were in Bangkok, uh, beginning their process yeah. of, uh, of resettling. And how did their testimony um, influence uh, your work or inform your work? One of the things that's, that's significant about the North Korean uh, human rights issue is there are a large number of North Koreans who have come out. I mean, there are over 30,000 uh, that are now living in South Korea. There are not that many in the United States. We're talking about a couple of hundred in the United mm. States there. Are, but many of these people are quite frankly willing to discuss and talk about their experiences. And uh, there's a whole literature of uh, defectors stories, yeah. uh, people who talk about their experience. It's the kind of thing that the stories are disturbing, mm. but they're fascinating. And there are a lot of stories that are told. Uh, some of the best stories are, are told by journalists who meet with uh, various North Koreans as they're, uh, as they're coming out or after they've come out. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago Hanawon. Uh, now, for our listeners uh, who may not be familiar with it, it's a, um, uh, a resettlement center where the South Korean government houses North Korean refugees. Um, I, I think it's about a month at a time. Uh, there have been various uh, 
time lengths that they've been there, but they uh, received some education in um, how to live in a capitalist society, how to deal with money, how to get a, a driver's license, how to use a computer, how to deal with all the English loan words in the Korean language, that kind of thing. Uh, and there's one for men and there's a separate facility for women. What was your experience of visiting Hanawon? What was that like? What kind of impression did you get? One of the things that struck me about uh, Hanawon is how attentive and thoughtful the South Korean government was in dealing with these new, uh, newly arrived uh, North Koreans. Uh, it's a major effort that they have put into creating this uh, place to help people adjust, to teach them how to adjust. The other thing that they did at Hanawon that I was particularly impressed with that you didn't mention mm -hmm. was this is where they get medical care. Uh, one of the biggest things they do there is provide medical and dental treatment. And uh, they have a massive medical operation going there because most of these North Koreans have not had very good medical and particularly dental care uh, during their lives in North Korea. And the South Koreans are very generous in terms of doing that. But I think that the South Koreans are... are uh, are very attentive to what the concerns are of these people. And uh, I think they've done a very good job. There have been some criticisms of uh, of the South Korean government. There were uh, stories recently of, of the woman, the defector, and her son who, who starved to death. Uh, there are obviously some cases where individuals fall through the cracks, where something is missed, but the isolation, the problems, the difficulties of these defectors is something that I'm impressed that the South Koreans do a particularly good job of, of dealing with that. Mm. One of the reasons why there are so few who come to the United States is that our system is far less well-organized than the South Korean system. In the United States, people, uh, refugees come uh, to the United States. Immigrants are here all the time. They're allowed in. They come in. Uh, there are private groups that provide help. But in the case of the North Koreans, uh, it's not private groups. It's the government that provides the services and the assistance and, and the education. And so I'm particularly impressed with what the South Korean government does. Now, was it the uh, South Korean Ministry of Unification that was your main uh, point of liaison? I did spend quite a bit of time with the, the Ministry of Unification. I dealt with them on a lot of issues. I also dealt with the Foreign Ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, most A lot of the stuff that I did uh, when I was uh, doing things other than in South Korea uh, was dealing with the Foreign Ministry, uh, United Nations in Geneva and New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, issues involving European Union, that kind of thing. So I'd say probably uh, foreign ministry first, uh, unification ministry a close second. Right. Now, during your uh, eight years um, in the uh, the position there from uh, November 2009 till January 2017, uh, it so happened that the governments in South Korea uh, were led by uh, President Im Yong-bak and President Park Geun-hye. So both of them quite conservative in their outlook. Do you feel that... Um, do you have any sign that South Korea's uh, treatment of, of North Korean refugees in South Korea differs depending on who's in the Blue House? I'm not convinced that there's that big a difference between uh, the conservatives or the progressives. I think both of them tend to be fairly good about dealing with the... Uh, the defectors. I think on the political level, in terms of relations with North Korea, on the focus on human rights and the attention that human rights gets, there very clearly is a difference between uh, what the current progressive government does and uh, what uh, Yuming Bak and Park Gennady were doing uh, in terms of uh, what was happening in Geneva, what was happening in New York, uh, what was happening elsewhere. Mm. Yeah, actually, I have some uh, questions further about that, but I'll leave that for the end to see if we have time. Uh, the United Nations Human Rights Council established its Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea in 2013, and it reported in 2014. How did you interact with the uh, Commission of Inquiry, and how did its work and report impact your work? The Commission of Inquiry was one of the best things the United Nations has done. Uh, there were questions about whether we should proceed with the Commission of Inquiry. There were some controversies. There were some disagreements in the United States as to whether we ought to support it or not. Uh, we ultimately, fortunately, came out on the side of, of supporting it, and we were very strongly in support of that effort. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Geneva 
I was in Geneva four or five times a year at the Human Rights Council dealing with uh, issues involving uh, North Korea. And uh, the decision to uh, create the Commission of Inquiry was something that we were very supportive of, and uh, the United States lobbied very heavily on uh, on getting that done. Uh, we were very pleased with what happened. The, the thing that was so impressive is the documentation that was provided by the Commission of Inquiry. Their report is uh, 300 and 50 uh, pages long, full of detailed information, detailed statements, detailed documents of, of what's going on. We were able to help them in some ways. Uh, they held uh, the equivalent of what would be called a hearing, uh, I guess. They had sessions, in some cases public, in some cases private, where the commission, uh, the three commissioners, were able to meet with North Korean defectors, with uh, others who had it extensive experience in dealing with these issues, and they were able to gather a lot of good information. They did have one of those, uh, they had one uh, of these uh, meetings, one of these hearings in uh, uh, Bangkok, they had a series of, of hearings in Seoul, they had a series uh, in Tokyo, and then they had a series of meetings here in Washington, D.C., and then meetings, of course, in uh, in Europe, primarily in, in Geneva. And and those were extremely helpful in terms of getting a, a breadth of, of information. Uh, but the commission, the way they conducted the report, uh, the way they did what they did and how they did it, uh, was an example of what the United Nations can and should be doing on human rights issues. Uh, so I have nothing but, but praise for the effort of the Commission of Inquiry. I was lucky enough, I think, uh, just over a year ago to interview uh, Justice Michael Kirby, the, who headed the, uh, the inquiry, uh, on, the, on the podcast. So listeners, if you're interested, you can go back into the archives and uh, dig up the episode with uh, Michael Kirby and have a listen to that. Uh, now, President Obama's uh, policy towards North Korea has come under a bit of criticism for, um, I know the name that's often given, I don't think it was chosen by him, but the name that's often given to the policy was that of strategic patience. And people look back and say that there wasn't much... Uh, forward movement in that eight-year period. Do you feel that you could have done more in your position if President Obama had had a different policy towards North Korea? Part of it is, I think, it's a question of timing. Keep in mind that Obama came in in 2009. In late 2008, uh, Kim Jong-un had what is apparently, apparently was a stroke. Uh, he was out of commission for some time. Uh, he came back uh, was back and functioning, uh, but there clearly was some slowdown in terms of what he was able to do. He passed away in uh, December of 2011. And uh, then we had the new leader, uh, Kim Jong-un, came in. The difficulty is that Kim Jong-il was not really in a position to seriously deal with the issues uh, that we were trying to deal with him on. Uh, because I think in part of his, because of his health, because of his concern about establishing the succession of his son, which was, uh, which started about the same time, 2009. There's only so much that a regime can do like that, uh, when it's a very, uh, you know, focused on, on the one leader. And the result was that because the leader, uh, both Kim Jong il and Kim Jong un were involved in important, vital, internal, domestic issues, they were not in a position to sit down and seriously negotiate with the United States. And I think that's part of the problem. Uh, strategic patience, yeah, it's not a particularly good word to use. It was at a time when the North Koreans were not willing to negotiate. Now, I'd say Donald Trump has had no better success. In fact, I think he's probably had a lot worse success uh, in trying to do the same thing. And and uh, this uh, is, is the result of a number of other things. But uh, we're at a point where if there's going to be progress, maybe Kim Jong Un is now ready to to sort of get serious about it. He certainly hasn't shown a willingness to do that in the uh, two and a half uh, meetings that he had with Donald Trump. One only counts as a half meeting because not much was done. <laughs> That's the one in Panmunjom, yeah. Yeah. Do you still follow the issue now, even though this is no longer your job? Oh, yeah. I have a fascination with, with what's going on in North Korea. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm... Uh, involved with the Center for Strategic and International Studies here in Washington. Mm. 
I'm in the process of finishing a, a book on my experiences as a special envoy that will be published by Stanford. Uh, uh, I finally got my draft into the uh, editors, and I'm hoping that we'll make progress now, but that's underway. Uh, I was involved with the conference that Stanford did on uh, human rights uh, that was held earlier this year that's also uh, uh, some of the uh, results of that conference are being published. So I, I'm still keeping active in it, yes. And indeed, uh, you also uh, very recently wrote a, uh, a column for NK News that uh, subscribers to NK News can get on the website and read that. Uh, it's entitled, Unlike Trump, Biden will appoint an envoy for North Korean human rights. Now, you just mentioned uh, President Trump. Let's turn to, uh, to him. You uh, left the position, of course, at the end of President Obama's term. President Donald Trump failed to ever nominate a special envoy for North Korean human rights. Why do you think that is? A couple of reasons. One is there wasn't anybody in the State Department that was anxious and pushing on the issue. When uh, Rex Tillerson was Secretary of State, he had a plan that proposed to eliminate the position of Special Envoy for North Korea Human Rights, as well as a number of other positions in the State Department. That created heartburn on Capitol Hill. Members of Congress reauthorized the North Korea Human Rights Act, which requires the president to appoint a special envoy for North Korea human rights. So that was part of the beginning is uh, somebody was in a secretary of state who wasn't terribly interested in following through on those issues. Uh, the president himself was particularly uh, bad about his view of human rights. Uh, initially, the relationship between the United States and North Korea, or between Donald Trump and, and Kim Jong-un, was not a particularly good one. And Donald Trump saw human rights as a stick uh, to beat the North Koreans, to get them to make concessions in security and uh, nuclear areas. And the result was his Donald Trump's first speech to the UN General Assembly included uh, a uh, a very strong denunciation of Kim Jong Un, in part on human rights grounds, uh, referred to him as little rocket man. In Trump's uh, first State of the Union message in uh, January of 2018, he had in the gallery of the House of Representatives chamber where the speech was given, parents of uh, an American citizen who died after being detained in North Korea. He had several North Korean defectors who were present in the gallery, and he spent almost 10% of his State of the Union speech denouncing North Korea, including very strong comments about human rights. Two months later, when uh, the South Korean government proposed uh, on behalf of North Korea, asked if Trump would be willing to meet Kim Jong-un. He said he would. Not another word about human rights. Now, the effort at negotiating with Kim Jong-un has been a, a dismal failure. Uh, Trump has had, as I say, two and a half summits, and nothing has come out of that. Trump has refused to go back and raise the human rights issues. In fact, it's still uh, nothing said about human rights. So Trump's approach on human rights was largely use it to try to get concessions in another area. This is the art of the deal. You know, hit them on the things where they're weak and uh, get them to con make concessions to you because you have the better better way of moving forward. Okay, but is it a coincidence that uh, is it a coincidence that in seventy years of conflict with North Korea, the one United States president who was ever able to sit down face to face to talk with a leader of North Korea is in fact Donald Trump, and not just once, but as you say, two and a half times. Would these summits have ever happened if President Trump, uh, well, if there'd been another person in the White House? I don't think anybody else would have had the meetings with Trump unless they were properly prepared. Trump went into those uh, summits without actually deciding what he wanted to get out of it. You know, this is a real estate developer. Let's see what they're willing to do. Maybe there's something where we can get together and agree on it. If you're negotiating over a gambling casino in Atlantic City, that's one thing. 
when you're talking about complex issues like nuclear weapons and how do you deal with complicated military issues, uh, you need to do it in advance. The standard practice when you're dealing with these kind of complex issues is you have senior officials in the government who sit down, who get instructions on uh, how to negotiate and what they can accept and what they can't accept. They get together, they try to work it out, they try to see if there's areas where uh, where they can make progress. Uh, Trump didn't go into this with any, uh, you know, with that kind of preparation. He thought all he needed to do was sit down with Kim Jong-un and they'd come up with something. Uh, Kim Jong-un was a better negotiator than Donald Trump. Uh, and that's the problem. Uh, anybody could have met with uh, one of the North Korean leaders. They would have bent over backwards to meet with an American president. But other people did not, uh, other presidents did not consider that a particularly wise use of time. Uh, if you're a reality television host, sure. You'll get lots of, uh, lots of cameras and, and lots of pictures there. Uh, but that was about all that we got out of but that. Is there no value to be gained merely in, in a, uh, you know, um, an initial meet and greet to set some rapport and to build a bit of uh, trust and confidence in each other as, as personalities? I think one thing that comes up time and again in uh, discussions about dealing with North Korea is that there's a, a tendency to forget the human element of it. Trump presumably did that with the first summit in Singapore. But then when they went to the uh, the summit in Hanoi, mm -hmm. neither side was willing to make uh, to negotiate and nothing happened because nothing was done. Yeah, the ice was broken and they could sit down and could talk. Uh, you don't have to start at the top to begin negotiations. And in fact, for North Korea, Meeting with Trump and having uh, those photographs and those pictures did a great deal to enhance Kim Jong-un's uh, position, particularly domestically, but also to some extent internationally. Donald Trump got very little out of it. And it seems to me that, you know, when you're looking at trying to narrow differences over very significant strategic issues, uh, you need to figure out where there are areas that you can compromise and you bring the big guns in at the end if there are a couple of issues that need to be resolved or if you need to have the, the photograph and the cameras showing the signing of, uh, of an agreement. Uh, simply sitting down with Kim Jong-un gave him a boost and didn't do anything for Trump. At the time the Singapore summit happened, uh, did you feel the same way or did you feel a, a little bit more hopeful? I was skeptical, uh, in large part because there wasn't much going on to prepare for it. Yeah. Was there anything that Donald Trump got right, you feel, in, in terms of North Korea policy? Not really. I mean, part of the problem is that uh, Donald Trump has difficulty distinguishing between friends and foes. He's got a better relationship with Putin uh, than he does with uh, a lot of the traditional American allies. He's doing a very foolish thing in terms of demanding North Korea, pay, uh, South Korea pay much higher uh, amounts of money to have American troops stationed there. He's turning American military forces into mercenaries. Uh, we have interests in South Korea. We have a strong relationship with that country. And having uh, American troops there to support South Korea is in our interest as well as the interest of South Korea. And his sort of uh, take-it-or-leave-it uh, ultimatum to South Korea that you have to pay more for American troops being stationed there was very poorly done. And it has not helped the relationship with South Korea. It's raised questions in the minds of a lot of people. This isn't the way you treat with allies. Uh, and it, it becomes a real problem when, uh, when you look at what's, what's been going on. Now, you said earlier that uh, in the early part of his administration, President Trump used uh, human rights just simply as a, a stick to beat uh, North Korea over the head with. Now, it's interesting because actually some critics of American policy on North Korean human rights in general would argue that it's always been uh, a stick with which to club North Korea over the head and that... Uh, uh, this fits into an overall strategy of uh, of promoting regime change in North Korea. Do you feel that's a fair assessment? I don't think so. I, I you know, I, I would argue that uh, those who are in favor of regime change are missing the point. Our record in regime change has not been particularly uh, uh, stunning. Uh, I think what we are looking for in North Korea 
is a regime that is more responsive to the interests and the wishes and the will of its own people. My sense is that the changes in North Korea that would be most helpful for the relationship between the U.S. and North Korea is if the North Korean government uh, spends more of its resources providing food and medical care and that kind of thing for its own population. And that what we need to do is try to encourage them to move in that direction. Uh, the amount of money that the North Koreans spend on nuclear weapons and on maintaining a, an enormous military uh, is, is not particularly helpful for North Korea. Now, regardless of whether uh, such an assessment, i.e. that uh, human rights are a stick and that regime change is, you know, it's all part of a regime change policy, regardless of whether that's a fair assessment or not, it does seem to be how the North Korean government views the issue of human rights, especially when talked about by the United States, a country that it's technically been at war with for the last 70 years. It's a difficult situation. The North Koreans, because of uh, of the the results of the Korean War and the, the relationship over the last 70 years, it's a very difficult uh, relationship for us to deal with. Uh, we have, I think, a very good relationship with South Korea. Uh, we've got a very good relationship with Japan. North Korea, I think, is particularly insecure because it is uh, always uh, compared uh, to South Korea. When you look at North Korea and South Korea, these are two halves that used to make up one whole, and both sides are intent that that is what should happen. Uh, and so this is a contest between two very different systems as to who's going to be the ultimate authority there. Uh, when you look at the differences between North Korea and South Korea, you can understand why the North Koreans are paranoid. South Korea is the 12th largest nation in the world. It's a member of the G20. Uh, the last secretary general was a South Korean foreign minister. The current foreign minister of South Korea is formerly a very senior official in the United Nations. South Korea is a country that's admired and respected uh, around the world. Uh, North Korea is a country that has a standard of living uh, and a per capita income that's comparable to some of the sub-Saharan African states. Uh, it's a country that can't provide food for its people. It's a country that can't provide uh, medical care for its people. And it's a country that's sufficiently paranoid that it has to put money, uh, enormous amounts of money, into military expenditures. And uh, this, I think, is, is part of the problem. Now, when the position of uh, Special Envoy for North Korean Human Rights Issues was established by the North Korean Human Rights Act of 2004 under President George W. Bush, that was a time that uh, neocons had the upper hand in influencing U.S. foreign policy, and there really was active talk of bringing about regime change in North Korea. Do you feel, was it a bit different than when you, were, uh, when you had that office? Was there more, at, at, the, at least at the time of uh, the creation of the position, was there more of a feeling that this is a way we can, you know, get uh, Pyongyang to collapse? The reason the North Korean Human Rights Act was, was adopted was less uh, to do with uh, the neocons in the, in the Bush administration and their uh, jubilation over uh, some actions that uh, they took initially in uh, Iraq and other places, which turned out to be less helpful in the long run. There was a lot of concern about human rights. Uh, a lot of it was driven by concerns with Christians in North Korea. Mm -hmm. North Korea traditionally had a fairly large Christian population. Uh, many of the defectors who left North Korea had become Christians. South Korea has a, a Christian population that's, I don't know, somewhere around 20% probably of the population, but it's very influential. And I think that was one of the concerns that was behind the North Korea Human Rights Act. I'm sure there was uh, a certain amount of uh, sort of uh, regime change advocates that supported it as well. But the North Korean Human Rights Act has never had, it's never been a partisan issue. When the act was initially adopted, uh, it was adopted, adopted uh, in the Senate uh, without objection. It was done. Uh, in the House, uh, there were a couple of votes that were taken. Uh, two or three people voted against it. You had 420 uh, voting 
in favor of the legislation. This, this was broadly supported. Mm. Americans are very supportive of human rights generally, uh, not because it has some political significance, but it's because uh, this is, this is what Americans believe things, how Americans believe things ought to be. And, uh, this is, I think, the, the thing that is more behind the North Korea Human Rights Act than any sort of, uh, ulterior motive or, or any effort at regime change. It's, it's this commitment to human rights that makes a difference. Now, you live in, in Washington, D.C., and you're well connected there. Uh, what are the different trends of thinking and understanding on North Korean human rights? Can they be grouped together into a couple of main strands? You know, there, there is general support. The North Korea Human Rights Act has to be what we say, what we call reauthorized, has to be extended every four or five years. Mm. 2018 was the last time the legislation was extended. It was extended for another four or five years. Uh, again, it was passed uh, unanimously in the Senate. A vote was taken in the House of Representatives. It was 415 to zero. There is this same sort of sentiment is is still very strong in in Washington. Human rights, we ought to support it. Yes. Uh, so I don't think there's been a change in terms of the attitude uh, on that issue uh, over the last uh, almost twenty years. Now, in your eyes, is it important to include human rights in security-focused diplomatic engagement of North Korea? I think we need to have human rights as part of our engagement with North Korea. Whether it's, uh, you know, how you do it depends on what the sense of uh, the best way forward is. Uh, I don't know that you necessarily want to have a, a security discussion and a human rights discussion at the same time. But it's it's something that ought to be part of what we do. And we need to do it in a way that, that makes sure that it's part of the conversation, but at the same time, uh, make sure that we don't uh, use it uh, as Trump is using it, as, as an instrument to sort of force people to move in one direction or another. Turning back to the, uh, the, the topic of um, North Korean refugees or North Korean defectors, uh, how does the political world deal with questions over the accuracy of defector testimony? Uh, we know how the academic world does it. It's uh, mostly uh, pretty uh, patchy in a politicized manner, scattershot, and regularly in a way that is offensive to those directly involved. But politics and policymaking aren't held to the same standard of truth and accuracy. So I'm just wondering how, how you see that. There seems to be little question that the human rights abuses that one finds in North Korea are outrageous. Uh, yeah, there are probably some stories that are exaggerated. There are some stories that are questionable. But the bottom line is, North Korea is a dreadful place to live, and people who live there suffer fairly serious you know, abuses uh, that wouldn't be the case in most other countries in the world. Uh, some of these things are very obvious. One of the things that... Uh, one of the ambassadors who was resident in Pyongyang was there in uh, what was it, 2014, I think it was, mm -hmm. when Kim Jong-un's uncle, Jun Sontek, was taken out of a an expanded Politburo meeting and three days later was executed. Mm. Uh, you know, this kind of thing uh, isn't something that's covered up and hidden and you have to have somebody, uh, you know, tell the story. This is something that was broadcast on national television. You know, the same kind of thing with, with other examples of, uh, of human rights abuse that, that have been reported and, and recorded. We also have testimony of Americans who have been detained in North Korea what their experiences have been, what they have seen. They're looking at it from the same cultural background that we are, and they're poorly treated. The whole process is is pretty disturbing. So uh, would you say that in the main, uh, defector accounts are trustworthy? For the most part, yeah. I mean, there's certainly an interest in making a story interesting if you're trying to sell copies of a book. Uh, and, and there are some who may have done that. But I, you know, I've read enough of these stories. I've seen enough of the things to believe that a lot of it is fairly accurate. Uh, one of the things that we had, uh, an interesting experience with 
uh, is, you know, you've heard stories about people being forced to watch uh, executions. Uh, we happened to, by accident, get a satellite photograph of uh, a military academy uh, just outside Pyongyang. And there on the small fire range, while the satellite happened to be going over, there were a whole series of buses that were parked on the side there. And at one end, uh, in front of the uh, reviewing stand, was the very clear footprint of five or six North Korean anti-aircraft guns. And halfway down the firing range, there were five poles that were thicker than poles. You could tell that there were people who were tied to those poles and who were being shot at by anti-aircraft guns. I mean, the thing that's probably most convincing is the range of evidence that comes in. You have a number of stories of people who have have seen that experience, who've had that experience. Uh, you have others who've, who see evidence of it in other ways and in different kinds of ways. And these stories uh, tend to be confirmed by, for example, satellite imagery, which shows the existence of these kind of prison camps where people are held. There's, uh, there's enough evidence. It's consistent. Yes, there are some examples of exaggeration and some examples of problem, but for the most part, I think the defector stories uh, need to be taken seriously. These photos that you mentioned, uh, the satellite photographs showing a public execution site uh, while it was taking place, have they been made public? Yes. Mm, okay. uh, there's one on the web page of the uh, Committee for uh, Human Rights in North Korea. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's uh, very disturbing. Did you ever find yourself in a position where you had to ask painful questions to ascertain whether a, a particular defector's account stood up or not? You know, I didn't see my role as being one that was going through the process and trying to determine that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I was more dealing with the issue at the level of government-to-government -government relations, working through the United Nations, mm. this kind of thing. Where you probably find the best documented evidence is uh, the Commission of Inquiry report. Did you ever, when you were talking to uh, North Korean government representatives, e either at the United Nations um, or elsewhere, did you ever uh, present some of these things to them, like maybe show them one of the photographs and say, you know, well, what do you make of this? Or uh, refer to the Committee of Inquiry report and say, how do you respond to that? I didn't have to sit down and say, you know, here's the photo, explain why this happens. Uh, these are diplomats. They aren't the ones who are uh, are showing up there. Although the report you get from diplomats, and there are a number of diplomats who've recently defected, uh, including one who now is a member of the South Korean National Assembly, there's clear indications that, that they are aware of, of what goes on. There are stories told of diplomats who... Uh, after they come back from overseas, they're sent to a, a re-education camp for a couple of months to make sure they're straightened out after their experience elsewhere. They aren't the kind of thing that a diplomat is going to talk with another diplomat about. Are you familiar with the organization NKDB, the Database Center for North Korean Human Rights? Yes, it's a South Korean organization that gathers information and that kind of thing, yeah. Right, it's a, an NGO or a, a civil society group. They're having a bit of a disagreement these days with the Ministry of Unification because the ministry is effectively restricting their access to uh, interviewing North Korean defectors at the Hanawon Resettlement Center. Uh, and according to a, a press release put out by NKDB just last month, as a result of the, uh, these actions by the South Korean Ministry of Unification, which they see as dismissing NKDB and, and their work as unprofessional, they say that there's a diminishing of civil society space uh, in South Korea, and they're actually concerned that um, there may not be uh, a publication of white papers on human rights issues in North Korea. Do you, have you been in touch with that organization? Have you heard of these, uh, this kind of dispute going on under the, the current administration in South Korea? I've heard about this. I've heard about other uh, questions that have been raised. The South Korean government has uh, in the past been very generous in terms of access, uh, my access to uh, people at Hanawon and, and other places, and they've been very good about that. But as we mentioned, that was uh, under different governments. 
I I'm not fully aware of of what uh, what the situation is today. Uh, I know that there have been significant cutbacks in funds for human rights work that's being done by the uh, the Ministry of Unification. The Ministry of Unica- Unification under the previous uh, two presidents was more heavily focused on uh, the human rights issues and the concerns there. Uh, this administration has been more concerned about uh, trying to improve North-South relations. The Un- Ministry of Unification has been more concerned about uh, maintaining contacts with the North and what they have to do. And I think part of the result of that is uh, less resources available for defectors and for organizations who collect information on defectors like NKDB. Uh, I dealt with NKDB when I was a uh, special envoy. I met with them on a number of occasions. I met with a large number of other South Korean uh human rights group. I have great respect for what they do, and I think they do an excellent job. Uh, They are more heavily dependent on the government than most of the American uh, organizations are. In the United States, there's more a tradition of of sort of independent funding for for, uh, such civil society groups. This does make them more dependent on the government, and the government does have more effect in terms of what happens. It it does seem like it's a a tricky situation for the United States as an alliance partner for South Korea. And uh, uh, and here it is, it's the South Korean government ministry that's accused of stifling research into precisely that area that your position was created to look into. Uh, now, there's no one in your position right now in, in the United States, but would you, if you were still the special envoy on North Korean human rights, try to apply some creative persuasion on the South Korean government to grant more access to civil society organizations? I'd certainly do what would be appropriate for an official representative of the United States to do. I mean, uh, in terms of internal domestic issues, they don't give us advice and we don't give them advice. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, we talk about the issues that we have in common and we talk about these kind of things. And I think that would be part of what I would want to do. Is this an example of how refugees from North Korea can often become political footballs in the middle of great power games? Uh, I wouldn't go that far. I don't know that anybody is uh, is ignoring the, the, uh, the refugees. South Korea has done uh, an amazing job of dealing with these refugees from North Korea. And I think uh, one of the reasons for cutback in funds is because there are fewer of them getting out these days because North Korea has tightened the borders. Uh, There is still a lot of support for them. There are some areas where uh, I would suggest Korea might do some other things, but... uh, you know, I think it's it's the kind of thing that one has to handle carefully and uh, works best when it's behind closed doors. That isn't what you want to hear, but that's uh, that's the reality of the situation sometimes. Okay, well, what what hopes and expectations do you have under a Joe Biden presidency uh, for human rights in North Korea? I think Biden is uh, Biden was involved to some extent in what was going on. Uh, he was either the chairman or the ranking Democratic leader of the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 2004 when the North Korea Human Rights Act was adopted. Uh, he was uh, chairman or ranking member of the uh, uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee in 2008 when it was extended for the first time. Uh, it was it was done unanimously. If Biden had had any concerns about that legislation at the time, it wouldn't have gone anywhere. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I don't think he's focused on the issue, but I don't think that he has any concern about the issue. I think it's something that is consistent with where he is on foreign policy and where he is on human rights. Right now, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know his timetable, uh, but this is something that I think is likely to be uh, something that's likely to happen in a Biden administration. There will be a special envoy appointed. There are other offices that need to be filled. You've got uh, undersecretaries, assistant secretaries, uh, and then you get to ambassadors, special envoys, and ambassadors to specific countries. There are a number of these positions that require both a a nomination by the president and then a confirmation by the Senate. 
And uh, this is not a quick process when you have a lot of these kind of positions going through. There are 225 positions at the Department of State that are positions that are filled by a nomination from the president and confirmation from the Senate. So there are a lot of these positions that have to be filled. You have to, you know, sort of take priority. Uh, when I was nominated, Hillary Clinton asked me in May of uh, 2009 if I would accept the position. Uh, I said I would. It took a couple of months of background investigation of me, and my nomination was made in uh, September. I was confirmed in November, and that was a fairly fast one. Uh, and it was fast because there was some pressure from the Senate to get the position filled. Even under the best of circumstances, ambassadorships are probably not, we're not looking at those until, you know, next summer <laughs> right right well uh we we do hope that uh that things um continue to uh to move forward under joe biden and as you say that he's uh, his track record does give us some hope that he'll make it uh, a priority if not you know certainly not one of the uh, priorities of his, his first administration i think it's uh it's something that he will do uh, I think his commitment on human rights is clear. The legislation uh, which requires the position is clear. And I don't think he will have uh, concerns about uh, about appointing someone to that position. I think there are a lot of other things that need to be done. There's a lot of repair that needs to be done with other relationships, foreign relationships in the United States. We've got to improve our relationship with our NATO allies, which has suffered considerably in the last couple of years. Uh, we've got uh, some improvements in our relationships with uh, uh, South Korea and Japan that need to be dealt with. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to, uh, that, that he needs to work on and that I'm sure he will work on. Uh, and I think this is one issue that he will deal with. It's just not going to be uh, in the first uh, 100 days. Sure. Do you see any signs that uh, Kim Jong-un uh, in North Korea is willing to, uh, to sit down and talk about these things or, or empower his people to do that for him? There's no indication that Kim Jong-un is, is doing any of this. My sense is there are some problems there. They're not sure what's going on. We're not sure what's going on with COVID and what effect it's having in North Korea. I think the sanctions are having some impact on him. I think there are some fairly serious internal issues that he's got to deal with. It's not exactly clear to me where, uh, where that uh, situation is headed. Okay, well, unfortunately, that's where we'll have to leave it for now. But thank you once again for your time, Ambassador Robert King. We really appreciate you coming on the episode and talking to us. My pleasure. Good luck, and I appreciate what you're doing. <laughs>